In the meantime, the, the first reading this morning is taken from Psalm 44, which is on pages four, page 402 of the Pew Bibles, uh, verses 1 to 8. And uh, just following on from the kids' talk, where we've been hearing about God's power to deal with his enemies, we're going to hear again about God's power to deal with his enemies. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. With your hand you drove out the nations and planted our fathers. You crushed the peoples and made our fathers flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. You are my king and my God, who decrees victories for Jacob. Through you we push back our enemies. Through your name we trample our foes. I do not trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God we make our boast all day long and we will praise your name forever. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, and it's on page 847. Starting at verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Let me welcome you. Uh, it's great if you're visiting or new amongst us. It's great that you're able to join us uh, as we continue to look at the cross. That's what we've been doing over the last uh, few weeks. It's our preparation for Christmas rather than kind of focusing on, in on the nativity scene. Uh, we're spending our time focusing in on what Jesus came to do, his goal, his mission, the cross itself. It, it's the heart of the Christian message. Uh, it's our great comfort in all circumstances. And not least, the cross is powerful to transform us. It changes lives in a real and genuine way. And so as we look at the cross, we've seen in the past few weeks what it, what it has done to God. We've seen uh, how he steps into our place. We've seen the model it is for love. Uh, and each week as we gaze upon the cross, our hope is that it changes and transforms us. I'm going to pray that as we spend time reflecting on it, that we do just that today. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the way in which uh, you see us in our weakness and love us all the same. Uh, we give you praise and lift your name high up for yours is the victory and you are the great power. Uh, and yet you look kindly upon we who are humble. Uh, Father, we pray that we would be humble today. Uh, help us to place ourselves underneath your word and not above it. Uh, by your spirit, work in us that 
uh, we might have great confidence in all that you have achieved in the cross. Uh, Transform us, we pray, uh, that we would live lives that please and honour you. In Jesus' name, amen. None of us like to think that we've got enemies out there, do we? We know we're not perfect and and we know we can't be best friends with absolutely everyone, uh, but few of us like to think that, that there's those out there who are entirely committed to our harm. You know, there's a gossipy woman at uh, the mother's group. Sure, she's irritating, but you don't get the feeling she's, she's committed and her sole purpose is to bring you down. You know, even, even at the office, occasionally the enemy might arise momentarily, but, but generally things either get sorted out or one of you leaves the company and it's kind of over. You don't generally pick up lifelong nemesis. Uh, who follow you around as you go from job to job trying to bring you down in every place. If you do have a nemesis like that, come and talk to me later. Um, You're in a unique position. We we don't think of ourselves as carrying enemies. We're just kind of relatively get on okay with most people. Australia might even be at war at the moment in Iraq and Afghanistan, but most of us live indifferent to that. If the troops came home tomorrow, to be honest, my daily routine wouldn't change. It'd all be the same. And here's the trouble with that thinking. It can give us a false sense of peace. It can make us dull and it can make us lazy to a battle we all need to engage in, to a reality that there are enemies. Uh, This morning as we we reflect again, we stare in wonder at the cross, uh, as we survey it, I want us to be clear about two things. Uh, One is that we have great enemies. Secondly, that the cross is absolute victory in its defeat. Firstly, we've got great enemies. Uh, Martin Luther described our enemies as the unholy trinity. Sin, death and the devil. Realities that are there and entirely opposed to our good. They are completely dedicated to our harm. Most obviously we see death and sin and how they're out there for our harm. No matter who you are, death is your enemy. On Friday I was called to to visit my grandmother. She's in her 90s. She's uh, back in hospital uh, out of a, a fear, I suppose, called the visitor because she may not rally again. You know, also this week, uh, the nephew of one of our congregation died in a car crash, age 29. Now, I don't want to say no matter the age, death is our enemy. You know, death visibly destroys what's good. It destroys the goodness of relationships. We have an enemy. And sin is our enemy too. You know, that desire we have to do things our own way rather than God's, you know, that's actually opposed to our good. We think it's for our good, but actually it's doing us damage. You know, whether it's the way we, we undermine ourselves in sin or, or whether it's the damage that other people's sin does to us. Uh, Romans 7, Paul talks about that struggle and that frustration, that self-destructive nature of sin. He talks about how there's the good he wants to do, but he just doesn't do it. And he sees the evil that he doesn't want to do and he ends up going and doing it. That's the frustration. You know, I, I, I want to give lavishly to those in need, but I, but I end up worrying about my own situation and, and so I, I stifle my generosity. You know, sin is opposed to my good. Sin is working to harm me and, and harm you as well. Not to mention the sin of others, people doing things their own way. You know, their lies, their rage, their pride all oppose my good. We have enemies, we have death, we have sin and behind it all is the greatest enemy, the devil. Uh, Jesus described him in John 8.44 as a liar and a murderer from the beginning. 
Uh, in Genesis 3, we, we, we're kind of given an account to try and make sense of this world, what, what it was made to be and also uh, how it is now. We're given, a, given an account of sin and death's entry, entry into the world. That, that the tempter entered the garden and he, and he lies to them. And he lies to them and encourages them to doubt God's word and encourages them to doubt God's goodness and doubt God's integrity. And he lies to them that, you know, you can rebel, you can do it your way, but death won't come. And he lies to them and they trust him and they're led to death. As Jesus said, the devil is a, a liar and a murderer from the beginning. You know, we, we mustn't be deceived. We, we all have enemies. You know, maybe we see sin and death and we see the damage to do and it, it's easy to accept perhaps their threat. You know, we don't see the devil and, and the temptation for us is to believe his greatest deception that he doesn't exist. I think it's a cultural thing that we Westerners struggle with. Uh, that there might be a devil or demonic forces. Uh, my physics teacher and I, we used to have a good relationship. I didn't do very well in physics, but we used to chat a lot. Uh, we used to chat about the meaning of life more than anything else. It's one of those strange classes where I, I sat in the front row because we did less work in the front because of the teacher than the people who did the hard work at the back. Uh, and we'd chat about the meaning of life. And uh, once I remember him asking me with this condescending tone, you know, you don't believe in the devil, do you? Now, he was okay with me believing God, even though he didn't. Uh, but he just thought, you know, to believe in Satan is just superstition. You know, and I, I felt that and so I just kind of mumbled my way out. <laughs> yeah, the Bible is clear. The devil is real. He is the prince of this world in John 12. He is the god of this age in 2 Corinthians 4. You know, the, the fallback position is that if we're not actively in the service of God, we are passively in the control of the evil one. And he is a bad master. You know, he blinds people in 2 Corinthians 4 to the reality of their situation and the gospel and he entices people to join him in evil. Uh, he lies to murder. It doesn't mean we can't, you know, that we claim no responsibility for our actions. Don't misunderstand. There's no devil made me do it excuse in the Bible. Uh, in Matthew 26, we're, we're told um, Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest to offer his services to betray Jesus. And in Luke 22 and John 13, we're told actually it was Satan who entered Judas to go and do those things. You know, who was behind this betrayal, this act? Well, both. They're both responsible. Now, in the past week, if you follow uh, World News, Russia did officially admit to the slaughter of up to 22,000 Poles uh, back in 1940. Now, who's at work? Well, it's both Satan and, and sinful men. You know, our own selfish failure to keep our promises. Whose fault? It's our fault, but it's the evil one who deceives us to think it doesn't matter. He tries to deceive us and think that no sin matters, that, that it won't really harm us, that it won't lead to death. And yet it does. I want us to be really clear this morning. We have enemies. Those opposed to sin, death and devil are working to our harm. But are we struggling against them? Or has it become just so normal that you kind of go, oh, it's just the state of affairs, that's the way it is, and you kind of don't even notice that we're struggling because we haven't. You know, perhaps we've bought into a, a false sense of peace. Uh, even more, maybe we felt that you know, sin, death, devil, they're just too big. I'm powerless before them and so I'll just give up. And that's the beauty of coming to the cross, isn't it? You know, when you know just how great the enemies are and you realise how powerless we are before, we come to the foot of the cross and we see its achievements again. Uh, it's the second big point I want us to, to grasp, that the cross is, is absolute victory and defeat. You know, yes, we're powerless, but the paradox of the cross is, is just when Jesus seemed at his very weakest, just when it looked like he was losing, he was actually crushing his enemy. 
You know, as strong as Satan and his servants, sin and death are, uh, the Bible has always understood that God is far more powerful. So in Genesis 3 and verse 15, uh, God promises there at that point uh, that, that there would be a battle between humanity and the devil and one day it would be dealt with by a human, by an offspring of the woman, uh, a, a person who would conquer the sin. Uh, the expression there is he will crush your head. A serpent crusher, a Satan crusher. That, that's what the reading that Anna brought to us in Hebrews points back to. Now, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. So we we celebrate Christmas time. We celebrate Christ coming to become one of us, to become flesh, a a child of the woman. But we're not rejoicing in this kind of sanitised, pretty little nativity scene. There's nothing wrong with having one of them around the lounge room. They're very nice and kind of pretty and they're festive. And I'm not against that. It's lovely having them in, uh, uh, in, in shopping centres. That's all terrific. But that's not what we celebrate. We're celebrating a warrior who came to crush evil. Now, in his life, Christ drove the devil back at, at moments of his greatest temptation. Uh, in his public ministry, he just drove back our enemies. Um, he forgave sins. He called people to repent. Uh, he healed the sick. Uh, He raised the dead. He cast out demons. He drove back Satan's kingdom. And those were just the skirmishes. The decisive moment of the battle was the paradox of the cross. It's this this really weird moment, the cross, when we see it in terms of this kind of cosmic battle because Jesus was clearly stronger than Satan. He spent his life binding up the devil's power, driving him back. He, He could resist him and defeat him. And yet at the cross... What seems so strange is he submits to those satanic plots, those devilish schemes. Because it's at that moment of defeat that he wins absolutely. Colossians 2 verse 13 puts it this way. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. And he took it away nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The powers Paul's referring to there are, yes, they're both human. You know, it's Israel's power, Rome's power, the authorities humanly put him to to the cross. But it's also spiritual authorities in the context of Colossians. And at the cross, um, these authorities stripped Jesus naked and they held him up to public contempt and they celebrated a triumph over him thinking they'd defeated him. But what Paul is saying is that in that event, God was stripping them of their power. He was holding them up to public contempt. He was leading them in his own triumphal procession. Uh, The the idea of a triumphal procession there was uh, a kind of Roman practice. You'd return from a good, successful campaign at war uh, and you would march through to much celebration. People would cheer and clap and you would lead behind you the, the chiefs of the opposing forces just to show how powerful you are. It was your glory and their shame. And at the cross, the devil was thinking, that's what I've done to Jesus. But at the cross, in reality, evil overreached itself. Christ turned defeat into victory. Now, Luther called this, this achievement God's deceit. God's deceit. Uh, Luther was a fairly earthy kind of guy. He, he used this uh, analogy of a, a fisherman. So he, he talked about how uh, a fisherman would bind a, a line to a fishing rod and he, he puts a sharp hook on, he fixes a worm and throws it into the water and the fish comes and, you know, stop me if I'm getting too complex about fishing terms here, 
The fish sees the worm, not the hook. And he bites that. And he thinks, great, I've got a good meal. But at that very moment, the hook is firmly in its gills. It's caught. It can't get away. That's the extent of my fishing knowledge. And Luther says God does the same. You know, from on high in heaven, Christ came into the world and the devil finds him in the words of Psalm 22 like a worm, not a man, and he swallows him up. But Luther goes on and says, this to him is as food which he cannot digest. For Christ sticks in his gills and he must spew him out again and even as he chews, the devil chokes himself and he's slain and he's taken captive by Christ. You know, Graphic kind of earthy stuff that Luther does, spewing up. You don't get enough of that in in theology, do you? No, this is God's deceit. Because had the devil known, he would never work for Christ's crucifixion. See, at the cross, our enemies are broken. Satan is crushed, death is overturned. Christ tastes death, but he he removes its sting as he rises. Um, Sin no longer has power over us. We don't have to always sin. We can choose to do things God's way. You know, the cross is victory in defeat. And also that's got to transform us when we grasp that. Now, let me pick two ways in which we should be different because of it. First is we must engage in the spiritual battle. See, knowing that we have enemies, we must fight. And let's be honest, um, 21st century Christianity here in Sydney is soft. You know, we don't have a, a hardened edge and a, sacrifice, a sacrificial spirit that may, that, that's ready for war. Uh, in a high school history project, I interviewed my grandmother who uh, grew up in the Depression and uh, spent the first five years of her married life with her husband away at war. You know, stoicism and sacrifice was her generation. They were at war and it cost them and they knew it. But they made that. They, they were ready for it. They were geared up, even if they weren't on the front line serving. Now, we have troops at war, but we live untouched. And the terrible thing is, we expect the same in the Christian life. Now, a line in the baptism service that often raises interest with people is fight bravely under his banner against sin, the world, and the devil, and continue Christ's faithful soldier and servant to your life's end. It often attracts people's attention because it just seems so foreign to the way we talk about the Christian life and our understanding of the Christian life, that, that it's a battle. And, and it's, it's a problem of ours, not the prayer books. Yeah, we need to engage in battle with our enemies and we need to expect that it will cost us. You know, why is it that we fail to, to have a good routine with prayer and Bible reading? It's inconvenient. Now, why don't people connect to, uh, sorry, commit to connect groups week in, week out, meeting to study other, the, the Bible with other people, encourage them on? Why, you know, why don't we engage in more good works? Well, they're all inconvenient, aren't they? You know, I've been reminded this week, reflecting this aspect of the cross, that, that it's a war we're involved in, a spiritual battle. We need to be ready for that. Now, of course, we need to fight appropriately, don't we? You know, the, the type of battle changes the way you fight. Uh, I'm not expecting people will rush down and sign up with the military uh, at the end of this morning's service. Uh, that would be a misunderstanding. Uh, like, like in the way that the, the invention of the machine gun put an end to cavalry charges and the end of trench warfare because it was just inappropriate and unsuccessful. You know, we need to be clear on who our enemies are that we might fight appropriately. You know, if a lack of resources was humanity's problem, we'd we'll, we'll just do ration restrictions, wouldn't we? You know, if it was education was the problem, we'd do uh, you know, more of it. We'd pour into teachers and schools everywhere. We'd get knowledge up. 
But, but knowing that it's sin and it's death and it's de- the devil, we've got to fight spiritually. Uh, Ephesians 6 talks about our need to put on spiritual armour because we're up against the devil's schemes. It talks about how our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's a spiritual battle, so we, we arm ourselves with what defeated sin, death and the devil. That is the victory of Christ, the cross, the gospel itself. We arm ourselves with the knowledge of the gospel. We live a life that reflects the gospel. We fight by proclaiming the good news of Jesus and his victory at the cross. You know, the, the devil is raging against Christ's victory. But the way we'll win the battle, the way we'll drive him back in, in our city, in our lives, is by speaking God's word into this world. As Luther wrote in one of his hymns, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom, one little word shall fell him. Now, the devil, with all his shaking and trying to scare us and make us think he's powerful, one little word, the word of the gospel, will bring him down. You know, we engage by praying for God's kingdom. We engage by speaking to others of Christ's victory. Now, let me ask you, leading up into Christmas, how are you going to engage in this battle? Maybe answer these questions. Who are you going to share the gospel with to drive back the evil one? How are you going to commit differently to prayer? A second way it should transform us is we fight fearlessly because victory is certain. You know, knowing that our enemies have lost at the cross, we're brave. And um, we live in this era um, of the mop-up, basically. You know, Christ did win at the cross, uh, but because he's giving time for people to repent, he hasn't given his final judgment. We already know what the verdict will be. We already know who's won. And so the devil, yeah, sure, he prowls around like a lion looking for souls to devour, but he's a toothless lion. Uh, as someone put it, the best he can do is he might give you a bit of a gumming. Nothing more. Now, James 4 tells us, resist the devil and he'll flee. Now, how do we do it? Well, in James 4, it's, it's be wholeheartedly committed to the gospel and Christ. In 1 Peter 5, it's, it's about humbling yourself before God. It's about being sober. It's about being self-controlled and alert. It's being willing to suffer. Uh, someone shared recently with me how the evil one has been attacking her, trying to fill her with fear. And that he'd done that at other times in her Christian growth. But, but the great comfort that we could share in is that the devil can be resisted in the name of Christ. You know, hold on to God's word, live God's word, and he will flee. And maybe go one step further. Try laughing at the devil and his stupid schemes. Try making fun of him. You know, mock, mocking false dangers is a great way to fight sin and the devil. Uh, often in the, the heat of a disagreement... Uh, you're tempted to, to say angry words, to, to speak with hate. I'm sure you've never been in a disagreement like that, especially if you're, you're married, you've never been tempted to do that. But perhaps imagine you're in a situation where you'd be tempted to say those things. Uh, you know, Humour is just a fantastic way to diffuse the situation. You know, escape sin and the devil's trap. Let's start laughing more at the devil's attempts. You know, our culture so often makes fun of godliness. Let's remember the stupidity and silliness of sin. Let's make fun of that. And then we can be show that we are fearless before evil and the evil. Fight it fearlessly. Uh, we can root it out without fear of the consequences. We can, we can love because we know the ultimate outcome is sin won't win and we can cover others' sin over. 
true that even before death itself, we fear nothing because of the victory of the cross. I'm not sure how much longer my uh, grandmother will have with us here on earth, but she's a believer and she faces it without concerns or worries. The guaranteed victory means we fight bravely. We don't like to think we've got enemies, but we do. I hope that today we leave engaged, ready for the battle, but mostly with our eyes fixed on the cross where the battle has already been won, where our victories are short. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for your power and your victory. We thank you that our greatest enemies, the world, flesh, devil, sin, have all been conquered at the cross. Uh, Please, in your grace and kindness and mercy, enable us to withstand those temptations. Enable us to have pure hearts and minds singly focused on the cross that we might follow you. For our sake and for the glory of Christ and the sake of others, we pray. Amen.